those perspectives were, uh, I have to absolutely admit, they were edited. But because something was edited doesn't necessarily mean that it's spurious or false or untrustworthy. There, I, I may in this interview, I may fart really loudly and you have to edit that out. <laughs> Don't so, act like that didn't happen already. It, it may or may not. I cannot <laughs> confirm. <laughs> I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? This is Blake Fletcher, the Half Hour Intern. This is part two of a two-part episode with David Massey, who is a pastor in Phoenix, Arizona. So if you didn't hear part one, you might want to listen to that before this episode, or you can just go ahead and dive in right at the halfway point, in which we are talking about religion, philosophy, spirituality, um, all that kind of stuff, and arguing different points back and forth in a very respectful and fun manner. So without further ado, here is part two of Pastor. Why are we believing the scripture exactly? I, I guess it, who the hell wrote that? You know, like, are, are, you know, like, or even like the big ones, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like, okay, are these like trustworthy guys? Like, am I supposed to believe everything that they said? Like, I've got some pretty convincing philosophical friends, and you have people that believe so strongly in what they're saying that they that they really do believe what they're saying. And the like, one of the stories that you and I talked about earlier, that I, I'd love to get your opinion on is the story of Paul, who later became Saul, or I think the other way around, it was Saul became Paul. Mm-hmm. And he falls off his horse and he says that he sees God and he like totally changes his life because he sees God after he falls off his horse and becomes this great person. Now, if somebody today came up to me and said, hey, dude, I fell off my horse and then I talked to God, I'd be like, okay, that's great. You're full of shit. Like, I, that's, all, that's like all I would <laughs> right. think. And right. yet that dude's testimony is in the freaking Bible. And people, that's like a story that I know for whatever reason and a story that you know and a story that people believe and, and that, that think is true because Paul said it. And somehow Paul from 2,000 years ago is more trustworthy than somebody falling off their horse today. It's like, well, who the hell are these people writing in the Bible? And there, well, there's two, and there's two sides to that. Who is the person writing it? And how trustworthy are they? And not again, this isn't that they are trying to lie to people. Like, if somebody came up to me and they fell off a horse and they told me that they talked to God, I would believe that they believed it, but I don't believe that it's true. I, I, yeah, I guess just speak to that a little bit, but like how and why you take these things as fact. Hmm, yeah, I mean, I. I can't start the answer without appealing to uh, the concept of faith. Obviously, I have a trust in the fact that the the Bible uh, claims to be authoritative, and that doesn't make it authoritative, but um, it claims to be authoritative. My heart, like all human hearts, are longing to connect to something, and I would even go as far as to say our hearts are longing to submit to something. Um, we want we want to be able to connect with uh, something or someone in a way that um, we know, like, okay, I'm not the one that's ultimately in charge. Yes, um, absolutely. So it brings us comfort when we know we're not the one ultimately in charge. That's why I find atheism so ultimately uncompelling is because it sets me as the center of my universe, puts me in charge. 
And, and it's just that, so sad and difficult. It's well, like my mom will me. talk to me now and be like, I, I wish that you would, you know, come back to Christianity. I'm like, mom, like nobody wants that more than me. Believe me. Like if I'm, <laughs> if I'm on my deathbed one day and I haven't gotten things figured out, well, it's going to be really scary being on my deathbed versus if I'm on my deathbed and I am fully convinced that, I, oh, this is just the start of this great adventure that's going to be coming up next. And granted, I, I do have more faith and spirituality than that. Like I do believe that something will happen after I die but yeah certainly to your point like to to feel that somebody bigger than you is kind of taking the reins of the situation is a wonderful idea yeah yeah i don't believe that because it's i i don't i don't believe that because i want to believe it um but i do have to acknowledge the presence of it in the way i formulate thoughts and different things so why do i believe the bible i believe the bible because um it it is something that has demonstrated itself to be true historically and just the the things that it describes but more than that um i find that when i read the bible it speaks powerfully to me um so some of it is experiential like i can i can hear the voice of my creator speaking to me through it and it's not to say that the bible as a document was written to me uh david in in the 21st century it wasn't um but it has this supernatural um, ability to, to speak to me. And so, um, that's part of the reason that I regard it as experientially based on my faith. As far as the, the historicity of it goes and the trustworthy of the, the actual documents goes, it's, if you really kind of do the homework, it's scary how, um, how tested the Bible has been and how over and over and over it has proven itself to be historically and archaeologically reliable um it's unlike any other historical document Interesting. and give us some examples of that so um you've got this let's let's just kind of jump into the new testament so you have matthew mark luke and john they're all telling different perspectives on the life of jesus and those uh those perspectives were uh, i have to absolutely admit they were edited but because something was edited doesn't necessarily mean that it's spurious or false or untrustworthy. There, I, I may in this interview I may fart really loudly, and you have to edit that out. <laughs> Don't so, act like that didn't happen already. It, it may or may not. I cannot <laughs> confirm. <laughs> um, editing is 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 an okay thing. It doesn't always assume mal intent, um, and so I'll be the first to admit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John edited their documents because they had a. They had a certain perspective to share, and they couldn't include everything that happened. Um, what's remarkable, though, is that they didn't edit them in a way that, um, at least it's so it seems, they didn't edit them in a way that left out contrary or contradicting information because they couldn't. And here's why. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written about 30 to 40, maybe 50 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So all of the, not all of, but many, many, many of the eyewitnesses that saw Jesus perform miracles, uh, lived alongside of him, saw the ministry that he did, heard his preaching and teaching, um, those people were alive and they were the ones that were able to uh, call out anybody for editing the what was actually written down. Because originally... The New Testament, at least the Gospels, were just orally transmitted. It was stories. And sometimes people say, oh, well, how could you trust the stories? Because it's like a game of telephone. You know, you, you tell somebody 
uh, a certain message and then that message gets transmitted through 50 people, let's say in a classroom setting. And then you can't, the, the end product is totally different than what the original message was. You ever played telephone like that? Of course. Yeah. And it's fun, right? You get a good laugh out of it. But the, the game of telephone, of course, is predicated upon secrecy and upon mistranslation. That's the point. It's meant to be, you know, it, it twists from uh, some message to then something totally different. And we all get a laugh out of it. The, the oral transmission of the Bible through the people of the time was, was predicated upon truthfulness, not on untruthfulness or obscurity. So if you had somebody that was orally telling the story of Jesus's life or a portion of Jesus's life, and they got it wrong, the community of people around could say, no, that's not actually how it happened. Uh, This was how it happened. And I have all these other people to back it up that were there that witnessed it. And that then prevented the gospel writers from just kind of grinding their theological acts to force people to live how they wanted them to live. But by the way, if just from a practical standpoint, if, if you and I were um, wanting to make up a story about how to live your lives and be religious, like it certainly wouldn't be through the message of Christianity. Follow this, follow this, this Jewish peasant who got murdered on a cross and then allegedly rose from the dead and give him your entire life. Like that's, if I was making up a story, I'd say salvation comes through uh, napping and eating chicken wings, right? Like, <laughs> it wouldn't. It wouldn't be through devoting your life to a guy that came back from the dead two thousand years ago. It just you wouldn't do it. Yeah. So anyway. Um, so two notes on that. One is: Have you ever uh, have you ever played the game Telestrations? Uh-uh, I've never heard of it. What is it? Oh, dude, it's so good. You got to get it. Um, so it is the the game Telephone, but done more like Pictionary. So um, they give you eight different little booklets where each page of the booklet is like a, a little like whiteboard and you're given like whiteboard dry erase markers and it's a little like flip booklet. And so you play with up to eight people and each person draws a card and you're told a thing that you have to draw. And it's something that's like pretty difficult to draw and would be really difficult to kind of guess what it is that the person drew. So you draw this thing and then everyone passes their booklets to one person to the right. And the next person to the right has to guess what it is. So they write down what they think that it is. And then the booklets move again to the right. And then the, per- the next person has to draw whatever the previous person's guess is. And it goes on and on and on and on. So you see like how these drawings morph and how the guesses <clears> morph. <throat> so you're playing the game of telephone, but through drawings. It is absolutely fantastic, my friend. You got to get, you gotta get Te- it oral. Okay. Yeah. Actually, my fiance, we were doing our registry last night. We're getting married in May. And she said, what board games should we get? And so I'll tell her to add that to the registry. That'd be good. Oh, yeah, for sure, man. Um Man, and I will. Uh, I don't know how soon I'm going to be putting it out, but I actually just did an interview with a uh, with these guys w- with one of the guys that has this company where all they do basically is like board game recommendations and stuff. So I uh, I, I got so many good recommendations from him. You'll have to listen to that episode when you're trying to okay. get the registry. And congratulations, dude! That's awesome. Thanks, man. Yeah, we're super excited. It's going to be fun. Are you getting married out there in Phoenix? Yeah, yeah, in uh, in Gilbert. Cool, dude. That is great. Um, so, and then the, the second thing is, I guess when I was talking about editing, I wasn't so much talking about people editing themselves. I was talking about the books coming later on. So if, um, if in like watching something like, uh, making a murder on Netflix has totally opened me up to this it is just how, 
how different people's eyewitness testimony can be to to an event. Like even people that that saw the exact same event take place will tell you two different things about it. Um, and if so, like somebody had to be the these group of guys had to be the people that like collected all the documents and decided what made it in the Bible and what did not make it in the Bible. I assume a lot more people wrote and submitted things per se than things that actually made it in. Um, so, you know, we all know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There was probably also like David and Blake and like all these other people that were like, Oh, here, like I, I wrote down some stuff about what happened. And they're like, no, thanks guys. Like we're, we're all good. We, you know, we yeah. got enough right here. But they had to make the decision on which people were the people that got in and which testimony was the testimony that got in. So let's say Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, let's say 10 different people were at the level of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and submitted documents. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four people whose documents are the most closely related to each other. And the other six people have documents that sound like a little bit wonky or like aren't, uh, you know, aren't as closely tied to the other four. Well, then naturally you're going to grab the four that are really closely tied together and use those. Um, or like the movie, I think the movie Stigmata talks about this in the movie. Um, like one of the plot points of that movie is that it turns out that Jesus wrote his own um, scripture and that it was purposely left out of the Bible um, because that early Catholics were afraid that it would... Uh, drive people away from Catholicism because this this the scripture that Jesus allegedly wrote um, told people that they could find God within and that they could find God in nature and they could find God in all these other places and basically stating that like there isn't a need for you to go to church like you know you you have God within you and you have God in all these other places and like go and worship outdoors and go and worship here so they were worried that you know, whoever, and, and again, this is this completely fictional plot of this movie. I'm, I'm not saying sure. that this is what happened, but I definitely like when you have the Catholic Church doing things like the uh, the Crusades back in the day, and like putting people inside of Iron Maidens because they weren't Catholic. I definitely wouldn't put it past people to edit a book with a certain slant to it to to you know drive up the numbers of people that believe in their religion. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot there. Uh, let me see if I can come back to at least the documents, the early documents within the first century. Yeah, how much do um, we know about that? Like, do we know how much, how many documents like got submitted, or like what what people decided what got kept in the Bible and stuff? Yeah, yeah, we we do. Um, although I I would say it I the 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 idea the concept of submitting documents to be part of the Bible that wasn't really how it worked. Um, it's not as though you had Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you had these other two knuckleheads named David and Blake who listened to metal and punk rock and therefore weren't trustworthy. Uh, they didn't like rule us out, you know. W what happened was is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, <clears throat> and then as Paul became uh, a prolific leader and early apostle within the first century church, as he started writing to different churches, um, they started to realize that this was. Um, this was God revealing himself through the writings of Paul. So it's not as though the New Testament is ever comprised of the written with the finger of God document. Um, but you have these other documents written by men through whom God worked. And those documents over time, people started saying, this is God speaking to us through this. Um, and we can, we can see evidence of that because, because of Jesus's resurrection from the dead. 
And so over time, they started asking themselves the question, what is it that's going to constitute the biblical uh, canon? By, and by canon, I, I don't mean like a the explosive <laughs> weapon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the can- canon comes from the Greek word kanon, which means like rule or measure. So what was the measure of books that would um, would constitute the scriptures, would be the go-to book for this new group of Christians? And that was a that was an interesting process because it wasn't like people said, "Hey, I've got this document. Why don't we check this out?" It was it was more of a, the community at large has acknowledged the truthfulness of these statements or of these occurrences because they themselves witnessed part of it or or some of it, and uh, those then became the accepted documents because they were rooted in um, people knowing that they happen. The same thing with Paul, as he wrote, um, he was testifying to the risen Christ, and um, people said, this this is God speaking to us through these documents. Now, there were other documents. I don't want to disregard those. Um, the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Judas, right? You've maybe heard of those before. Um, and those those documents are interesting, but they don't, one, they don't claim the same kind of authority necessarily that um, some of the biblical documents do. And two, they don't have the type of eyewitness credibility. They came hundreds of years after um, the the actual life of Jesus, whereas most, most historians would say that like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John came between 40 and 60 years after Jesus, all of them, of course, within the, the, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses. And so, these extra biblical documents that would, for some people, uh, say, "Oh, we should include these," they just weren't includable by their very natures because hmm. they didn't they didn't claim the same authority and they didn't have um, the kind of um, the kind of content that was was it, it it was they were the they were the exception to the rule the exception to the canon because they didn't um, by exception I mean they were um, not part of the norm because they told very different stories about the life and ministry of of jesus so um could it be that people had with malintent sort of kept those out because they didn't want them to be true yeah i i guess that's a possibility um i can't i can't close myself off to that because i don't know with absolute certainty but part of my trust in the bible as a as a um, spiritual and historical document is also my trust is in God's hand in coordinating what would be in the Bible and what would not be in the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I I can, I can give kind of historical reasons, but I also have to say my faith shapes this. I can't, I can't get away from the faith part of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. That's, I mean, that's awesome. Um, do you believe that God cares if you are religious and does god care if you believe in him and actually and let me sorry to ask a three-part question here but most of your beliefs and things like this are, are they just pulled straight from the bible and that's that well i mean yeah you can you you have to, to understand some of the some of the historical um features of the bible you do have to kind of go outside the bible and start looking at okay what do different uh, ancient historians say about the life and times of Jewish people in the first century. And so to do that, you'd go to a, 
a historian, a, a guy named Josephus. And Josephus very clearly was not a Christian, was, uh, was, not, um, was not for the expansion of the, the, the Jesus movement, essentially. But he was a guy that recorded different events that did happen, and he did talk about Jesus and the reality of Jesus being at least a person. But um, Josephus, you know, differed on the question of whether or not Jesus came back from the dead. So most of this comes from the Bible. Yeah, I, I look at the Bible, I go, okay, this seems to be saying this or that. Now, how can I go to outside sources, historians or um, archaeological findings or the, the content about the findings? Because I don't know anything about archaeology. But how can I go to these other sources and get a clearer picture on the overall historical context. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so then back to that, uh, back to that question, do you believe that God cares whether or not someone like me is religious and, uh, like, does God care that I believe in him or not? Or is it just basically the, like who I am as a person? Um, that's a good question. What do you mean by religious? Uh, like, like going to, I guess basically the believing in him part, um, it, like religious, I mean, uh, subscribing to Christianity, like, uh, I, it, from a, from someone like me's perspective, I don't even know what you would call me like agnostic or I, something along those lines, it, like you and, um, a, a Muslim or, uh, whatever would be believing in the same thing. Um, that you guys are believing in the same person and that you guys call him different things. Um, and that you guys are believing in the same idea, but you call these ideas different things. That would be, that would be my belief. But if like, do, do, in your mind, does the Christian God care whether or not you quote unquote got it right? Like if it does the Christian God, is he not okay with the fact that, um, somebody else is, is believing in Islam or something. And it, what about then someone like me that just doesn't subscribe to anything at all, but that tries to live my life like a, a good person um, and treat people well and live by, you know, the code that, that Christ set forward? Um, is Does that carry any weight or is it like, sorry, man, that's not good enough? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, God, God definitely cares for people. Um, and he wants people to trust and follow him and, and to love him. Um, so in a sense, I guess the answer is yes, he does care that people worship uh, another concept of God versus the biblical concept that he has revealed. So yes, he, do, he does. He wants people to worship the true concept of God, which was revealed historically in the person of Jesus. Um, as for like... A non-religious person who'd say, "Hey, I'm I'm just trying to be a normal guy, live a good life, de- you know, care for my family, care for my community, um, not lie, not cheat, not steal, not murder, that kind of stuff." Um, that would, in the in the biblical perspective, never be good enough in God's eyes um, because of the way Christians view who God is as completely holy, um, meaning completely. Pr- Free, free from and pure of any kind of uh, blemish or impurity or sin. If God is completely holy, no finite human being could ever kind of work themselves up to be good enough in God's eyes. 
And so that's where the that's where the Christian idea of substitutionary atonement comes in. Jesus becomes the substitute who makes people right by uh, dying in their place for their sins and uh, being a, being an atonement, a, a sacrifice whose life takes the place of the person's life who is owed to God. So for a person to say, "I'm I'm not religious." Uh, but I, I do try to live a good life. And if there is a heaven, I think I'll probably go there. I, I, I actually push back on that a little bit. Not, not to say that um, I'm at total odds with those people. I get the premise of it because all, all of our human hearts want to try and please somebody or something. We want to, for the most part, try and do, do what's right. But the reason I push back on that is because the concept of doing enough good in order to be counted good with God is um, where's the line? Like where, so let's say there's a line, right? And that's the good enough line. And if we were on a whiteboard, I'd draw it straight across, right? And that's, that's the point at which somebody says, um, I've done enough good and therefore that will warrant if heaven exists, me to be there. What if, what if David does just barely above that line? And he's just does one good enough deed or resists one bad deed enough. He just barely makes that line. But then Blake comes along and Blake does right up to the bottom of that line, but doesn't quite match it or exceed it. We would ask ourselves the question, well, how is that fair? And all people everywhere, Christian or not, they'd say, well, that's not fair, right? Like whose system is that? That's not a good system. Um, Fortunately, that's not the biblical perspective or the or the Christian view. There is no line to which somebody must measure up because the reality is it wouldn't be fair. You'd have one person that lived a week longer and lived a little bit better life, and then another person who was just shy of it. But how you'd look at the two people side by side and you say, functionally and morally, they seem to be the same. So why couldn't they both be equal in God's eyes? Well, they they can't because they could neither of them could measure up. So that line doesn't exist essentially. And if someone suggests that it it does exist, that you can be a good enough person and warrant God's love or salvation or whatever, um, that's actually, in my estimation, a true self-righteousness. Which is ironic, right? Because Christians oftentimes get accused of being self-righteous, and and they can be, let's be honest. But um True Christianity is one that finds its righteousness in what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross and then coming back from the dead. Whereas self-righteousness truly understood is to say, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I live a you know, good life. So why wouldn't I be accepted by God? That in my, in, in my interpretation of how things work, that would seem like true um, self-righteousness. So back to the, to go back to the question, does God want people to be, religious no not necessarily but he wants people to love him and to cherish him if if so if that's what you kind of mean by religious then yeah he wants people to know him and trust him and make him known to others um but he doesn't he certainly doesn't want people to just go through the motions of uh of of stagnant religious life like just okay, driving well, to church on sunday and playing around on your iphone and that's that yeah yeah so I don't know if that's clear, but um, yeah, absolutely. I, I I have some questions about that though. So sure, sure. Um, a big thing for me, and something I guess I, I wanted to ask, um, anyways, um, is why there are such two different gods in the Bible. Like 
the God of the Old Testament is basically the biggest jerk in the world. And then the God of the New Testament is just this beautiful, wonderful, forgiving God, a forgiveness that God completely lacked in the Old Testament. So, hey, that's just a little strange to me. But the the concept in general, I feel like the God of the Old Testament is such a construction of man. Um, the the concept of, of a God that really wants you to believe in him and that, that uh, the concept of a jealous God, like you shall put no other gods before me. You shall not do this. You shall not do that. And you better be you know, at church on Sundays and you better be praying to me. Um, and, and it's funny because this is all with my completely finite human brain. So, um, I, obviously this could be totally wrong, but the idea that you are an infinite being that is on a different spiritual plane from any human being and that you created the entire universe, you created everything that is Mm. that you could have negative human emotions that you could have greed jealousy envy that you could have any of these emotions is is unthinkable to me that you could be anything but like pure light and love and and that you would i I mean like your um your analogy of the of the line like and i know you were saying that you don't think that it's like that um i i would imagine that if you were to die that it's more if if there is a god that this this pure good infinite wonderful being would just like feel your soul and it, and that's it you know and like is this person good or bad and like i can tell that within a fraction of a second just by like feeling their soul or something you know mm-hmm. and there there doesn't have to be any line or anything because because i'm god and i'm the creator and i can just look at you and know and it's all good you know and mm-hmm. and also time is not even a construct to someone like that so by the way if you were 30 years old and you died um while you were still a bad person but you were going to become a good person when you were 50 but you just happened to get hit by a car while you were crossing the street well i can look in your soul and see that you were going to become a good person when you were 50 and that's cool. Like that counts because I'm God. I'm infinite. Time is not even a freaking construct to me. Anyways, the idea, like a lot of the stories in the Old Testament, like um, telling Abraham to sacrifice his son, and then mm-hmm. at the last second telling him, "Nope, just kidding. You don't have to do that." Like, what a cold-blooded, terrible thing to do to somebody. And then to say, "Well, I wanted to see how much you loved me." Really? Like that sounds to me like a jealous girlfriend. Like I wanted to you I need you to prove to me how much you love me. The idea that that something as beautiful and pure as a creator of the entire universe is, is going to like hold things against you and hang things over your head and need you to act in just a certain way, otherwise it's not good enough, um is 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 really really strange to me but again i'm i'm only thinking about that with with a finite mind but i feel like the people that wrote those things to begin with that decided on those things to begin with were thinking about those things with a with a finite human mind i guess is what i'm what i'm trying to say yeah no it's it's good that we both acknowledge our our um our finiteness if that's a word um we we can't figure it all out but i do think that with the reason and abilities that God has given us, we can figure out certain things. So um, the, with regard to the old Testament God versus the new Testament God and the perception of, of the, those, those concepts, 
um, that's a common thing. I've I've encountered that before, and I do I do understand the the drive behind that question because if you have even a brief knowledge of the Old Testament and the New Testament, you do see some of these differences that could if you don't if you don't kind of factor them into the bigger picture, they they can seem alarming. Um, however, if you really if you really dig into the Old Testament and if you really dig into the New Testament, you'll see that um, God is not a, a pissed off guy in the old school and then got older and chilled out. Um, <laughs> you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, he like retired and all decided he's just Yeah, really like, like now he's a grandpa and he's just hanging, you yeah. know? Um, but really, if you, if you read the Old Testament, you see all throughout, uh, you see this constant love and faithfulness that he has um, not just for the Israelites, but for other people as well outside of the Israelite camp. Um, in fact, if you read accounts like Jonah, which of course Jonah being in the belly of a whale seems totally disbelievable, but the point of that story is not to get you to believe in a whale or, or, or somebody living inside of it, but to show the immeasurable love that God has for this certain people group, the Ninevites, who were uh, by all moral calculations, awful people. And Jonah doesn't want to go to that city of Nineveh and tell them the good news about God and say, hey, you need to turn from your sin. God is good and you should you should turn to him. He didn't want to do that. And so um, eventually his world was turned upside down, or I guess I could say inside out, as he spends time in the belly of a whale and then finally gets to a place where he goes, all right, I got to go do it. And he goes and does it. And God's love in the in the, in the the uh, the spirit of God compels the Ninevites to turn to God. And it's, it's remarkable. He doesn't smash them, but people don't look at those stories. Often they just look at other stories where God smashes entire people groups and they go, who, how dare he, you know what I mean? But the reality is even when God smashes people groups in the old Testament, uh, it wasn't without warrant. It wasn't just because he disliked the way, um, the way they worshiped, it was because they were wicked people who did wicked things on the regular. And so these people groups of that were marked by injustice and hatred and, and uh, child sacrifice and just gross, gross things, um, God smashed those people groups because of their wickedness. And so what I, what I find ironic in that is sometimes people will say, Currently, they'll say, where is God? There's so much injustice and evil in this world. How could God, if he cares at all, how could he let this go on? And it's a good question. But then when God does that in the Old Testament, he doesn't let injustice and wickedness go on. He smashes it. People go, oh, he's such a terrible God. How dare he? And so I always go, well, which is it? <laughs> you can't have it both ways, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so anyways, the, the love of God is as present in the Old Testament as it is in the New um, it just is manifested differently in the new because um, God crushes, instead of people groups, he crushes, in a sense, himself in the person of Jesus. He takes on the punishment for sin and the way that um, people can have access to and relationship with God now is through Jesus because he took their place. He took the wrath that was due to them and took it on himself on the cross. So that's sort of the shift, at least theologically. But um, I would say at, at large, the perception of God being angry in the Old Testament and loving in the New is sort of a false perception, especially if you really get into the nitty gritty of it. Um, as for 
As for the specific example of Abraham, where he's told to sacrifice his son, his only son whom you love, um, which was a big part of the narrative that this was his only son, the one that he had waited for, and he was really old, so the likelihood of having a kid again was very slim. And uh, God said, yes, yeah, sac- sacrifice him, ki- kill him. Um, people look at that and they go, how, how could that be? And, and it's a good question because it does seem, it does seem odd, right? Like, do, do you have kids by the way, Blake? No, I don't. No, but if you did and you felt like there was some supernatural entity telling you to sacrifice your kid, you'd be like, no, <laughs> that's, that's crazy, right? Yeah, totally. Um, and I have to assume that Abraham felt some measure of that emotion, but if you if you read the narrative and then you connect it to the bigger picture story of the Bible, Abraham had a deep trust that um, that some sort of substitute would be provided, and that in fact he wouldn't have to actually sacrifice his son. And so God wasn't doing it to kind of play games and discover the actual intent of um, Abraham's heart, but he was God was doing it as a way of actually I think foreshadowing what God Himself would do in letting His Son be sacrificed on the cross. That's what it points forward to is Jesus in the New Testament. So um, the, the the concept of Abraham sacrificing his own son was not something th- that would have actually gone through and God changed his minute at the last mind. Um, God had established that from the beginning and God had spoken against it much late, later, the concept of, of child sacrifice. There were people groups in the Old Testament that were doing that. They were throwing their babies off of cliffs in in sacrifice to their perception of the ancient Near Eastern gods. So anyway, as far as uh, je- like jealousy go, you said, how could God have these human emotions? Um, I, I get that because I read those accounts as well and I kind of go, wait, how does that work? But then I ask myself, um, is jealousy always a wrong emotion to experience. So you've been married for a year now. Yeah. No, no, no. Only like five months, but we've been together for seven and a half years. So, Oh yeah. So yeah. you, yeah, your, your strongest affections are for her and, and her for you. Um, if there was another man who came along and started sort of stealing or attempting to steal some of those affections, you would have jealousy and rightly so. Um, because she is in covenant with you. Her, she's made a promise to you that uh, she would love and care for and be faithful to you. Um, and you guys did that in, you know, with with the the gathered people around you to to kind of hold you to that account, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The same can be sort of true with God. He is somebody who cares deeply about his people, and he wants for his people to love and serve him and he loves and serves them. But when they start to, to stray and, and love and serve other concepts, whether that's another concept of God or just, you know, love and serve the concept of anything else, we fill our, we try to fill our hearts with all kinds of things, relationships, jobs, money, uh, status, all that kind of stuff. When those things become functional gods to us, God gets jealous because he knows that ultimately that's not who, um, people should be in covenant with, but with him in the same way that, you know, your wife shouldn't be in covenant with anybody else because it's you and she would feel the same about you. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? It does, but it's still, I, I would still come back to my my first point of it, it. It makes sense to me that I would be jealous, but that's, that's because I'm, I am but a man, you know, like I, 
I'm a human being. If 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 you are this just completely divine being, the thought to me that you would have would have these these thoughts is strange to me. Yeah. Um, does does love does the divine attribute of love necessarily in your mind exclude the possibility of of wrath or jealousy? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, sort of. I, I I would think that there would be a different way to do it that we can't even comprehend, or or a different set of emotions that we. So, all right, let me let me use this analogy. So I, do, I don't have kids, as I've said, and I, it's mm. funny because I can't really fathom the idea of ever ha- having kids. Like when I go to my sister's house, I'm just like, oh my gosh, like this is what it's like, huh? This is intense. It's <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, like I really can't imagine having kids. And they're, little factory, they're little factories of sin, those, those, <laughs> those little ones. Yeah, man. And, and yet, I, and I don't know when and if I would ever be ready. That being said, I... I I look at the emotions that any parent has for their kids and it's a whole different set and a whole different range of human emotions that I know nothing about that I will never get to experience unless I have a child. And that sure. alone makes me want to have a kid one day because it's like god forbid I'm on my deathbed one day and you know I want to experience as many things before I die. I want to you know travel the world, I want to do all these different things. Well, those are all just experiences. Talk about missing out on something when you're on your deathbed is if you realize there's a whole range of human emotions that you never felt, that you never experienced, and now you're on your deathbed. So huh. yet these are, these are emotions that I, that I can't fathom right now, and someone telling me about them is also not going to do the trick. You need to feel them yourself. It's an emotion. And I would imagine that whatever disconnect there is between my sister and I and the, these emotions that we can feel... The disconnect between a divine being that is the one true God that created the entire heaven and earth is probably a bigger disconnect than the disconnect between my sister and I. So I guess I would just imagine that there would be such a different operating system that that like that these these petty human emotions just don't don't even come into it it's like not even a thing anymore you know and that's but, i guess what my sh- point about if we were to die and god were to just like look at your soul or like feel your soul it's like well i can't just come over and like analyze your soul because i'm a person you know but so that's silly to say but i i could imagine like a creator of the heavens and earth being able to do that so um when you hear about you know a god doing something out of jealousy or whatever it's like wow really like he's he's running with the same operating system that we are like that's that's unfortunate <laughs> i see what you're saying but my my pushback is um the 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 way that's framed assumes that jealousy and wrath are necessarily petty human emotions uh when in fact they may not they may not be um they, they might be but they may not be and so um i go back to okay well what does what does the scripture say about me as a human person, not as a Christian, just as a human being. Um, well, they say that I am, ma- the Bible says I'm made in God's image. That means that I'm made to, in some senses, be like God and to represent God um, in, in a more significant way than any other the, of, the, of the created order, more than animals or plants or the seas or the skies. People, human beings are like God and they represent him. So if that's the case, it's no, it's no surprise that they might in fact have um, similar emotions that God has. So maybe it's not so much that jealousy and wrath are strictly human emotions, but maybe they are 
uh, godly emotions that um, we in part share in, but distort. So the jealousy and wrath that we might experience can sometimes maybe be good, but other times can also be really bad. And um, the God of the Bible gives us the ability to have those emotions, but we have distorted the way we use them. And sometimes they create bad results. Um, so yeah, I don't know, I guess I, that's just as plausible and possible as anything else. I'll definitely say that much. It makes just as much sense as anything I just said. So that's, that's a really good explanation. Um, as far as wrath goes specifically, um, I, I would go as far as to say that wrath is a good thing when it's used properly. Uh, meaning if your sister's kids ran out in the street and there was cars or whether there was not cars coming, just ran out in the street she might well grab them by the arm and and yank them backwards and say like no right like don't go and they may yell like don't go out there uh, because they care deeply about them they they want to preserve the quality of their lives and um, that kind of wrath the little kid may go oh why why are you so mean right well no it's it's not so much that mom was trying to be mean but she was she was expressing wrath to protect you and to get your attention and so anyway I don't know if that's helpful but that's sort of the way i've understood it yeah definitely um all right man how about um why do you feel why do you think that the it seems like like groups like the uh the church especially some of the more like mainline religions as you would call them are kind of behind the times on social issues as opposed to ahead of the time on social issues i if you look if you're supposed to be looking at jesus's life as an example for how you should be living yours um like doesn't he kind of say it all by by hanging out with prostitutes and you know saying that that's okay and uh and saying that we should love our neighbor as ourselves uh, how, how come time and time again throughout history it, it, that's just like not played out the right way for religious people well, because religious people are sinners, just like anybody else. Uh, we're lazy. We're selfish. We um, would rather do what we would rather do. And so that can oftentimes get the worst of people. Um, so, and that, and that can play out at an individual level or at a larger, you know, corporate body of, of believers level. Um, so that's kind of the, the basic answer. Yeah, that's um, a great answer. We trust ourselves more than we trust what God says. <laughs> yeah, definitely, man. I that's another thing I think about so a lot of the time when I um when I when I'll see some of these like super churches and stuff that I drive by that are just uh, unbelievable looking and just crazy and it's like I I feel like there's two there's two major 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 things that the Bible says in in my mind is not like that are that are so deep and beautiful and wonderful. Um and obviously, in terms of like the golden rules, there's the you know have no other gods before me, and then there's the uh, like love thy neighbor part. But I really love the love thy neighbor part, and I love the we must be simple, humble, and poor. Like those those are just such like uh, just wonderful, insightful words to say that we need to strive to be simple and humble. And then I look at some of the like structures and things that are built up and it's like, that is not at all simple and humble. Like what's happening here? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the Bible, uh, it doesn't call it's the Bible doesn't call its followers to, 
uh, poverty necessarily. Like you must be um, financially poor. Um, but it does say that Jesus does say, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, um, meaning that th- those who follow Jesus, they should be blessed to acknowledge that they may not have everything they want to have physically or relationally or emotionally, but in spirit, they, they are, they are simple. Like you said, they're humble. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, I guess, exclude bigger things. Now I'm no, I'm no advocate of like the mega church model. That's a different way of operating in my mind. I don't, I don't really subscribe to that, but, um, big church or small church, the, hopefully the intent is to still love thy neighbor in the context of whatever community someone finds themselves. So when a church has the type of resources to build a big building and uh, do bigger production type stuff, um, they can do that well and honor God by um, using wisdom and and humility and measuring, okay, what here is necessary and what's not. Uh, or they can, or they can do it sinfully and just say, "Hey, we want to be a big production and have smoke and lights and glass mirrors and I, you know who knows what, um, just so that we can get more money." And that that's wickedness. That's wrong. That doesn't honor God. And ultimately, it doesn't lead to long term um, flourishing for people spiritually. It, le- it it brings people short of what they're really longing for, and that's to experience God. And so you can experience God in a big context or in a small context. Um, I think it's, I think it's remarkable how much we do encounter God in small contexts though, going, Oh, this simple thing reveals to me a truth about who God is. Yeah, definitely. So uh, David, let's wind this thing down with a few, uh, little more easy. And actually, as I look at my quote unquote, easy question, the first of them (laughs) might not be that easy, but, um, all right. So first of all, what is the most difficult question that has ever been posed to you? by either a parishioner or a fellow pastor of yours? Hmm. I think just the general concept of suffering is probably the most difficult from a pastoral level. Um, If God exists and if he is loving, why does suffering exist? So we just, just recently in our church, um, there's this young couple who was was pregnant and, and carrying healthy full term went in to uh, to give birth and something went terribly wrong in the the birthing process and the baby died and it was just just gut wrenching man it was just horrible wow uh, in fact I saw them at church for the first time they had they had just taken some time away to be with one another and um, the wife just you could just tell she just looked so crushed I mean it oh man it was awful so the question of suffering is the most difficult pastoral concept to walk because you don't have you don't have answers people say well why did this happen i don't know I, you you can't say well because god was punishing you no that's not true that's stupid to say yeah um well because you didn't have enough faith no 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 they have lots of faith um there they're just there aren't hard answers to which you can turn that will sort of solve the problem and make people feel better that the reality is is Suffering and brokenness exists in our world, um, and that doesn't necessarily change God's goodness. But it does. It suffering does affect our perception of God's goodness. So th- that's probably the, that's probably the most difficult. Yeah, that's 
That's tough, man. That's really tough. I mean, the lucky thing for you on the on the flip side of that is that is I I feel like a lot of people kind of accept the fact that bad things happen and yet when good things happen they attribute it to god do you notice that and kind of like why why is that like what people's idea is like oh yeah bad things happen like this is the reason why bad things happen is because bad things happen and then if somebody does something great or if something great happens to somebody that is because god that's not because good things happen they attribute that to god which is actually puts you in a in a really good spot as a, as a pastor and you know trying to to get people to be faithful. Mm, yeah, I mean, my theological bent is to is to say that God is sovereign, meaning He is in charge of everything. Um, that doesn't mean He causes evil or He is Himself evil and does evil things. But God allowed that family's baby to die. I don't know why, though. Hmm. Um, Interesting. I can't, I can't say, oh, Satan did that, uh, because then I, then that creates all sorts of other theological complexities. Well, then is Satan just kind of doing whatever the hell he wants, the ruling and reigning, and and God is not actually the one in charge? Then who? That would question God's integrity at that point. So totally, that's really interesting. So you believe that the negative things that are happening, that God is like complicit in them, and that we don't know yet what the reasons for th- this is. Yeah, I don't know if I'd use the word complicit because that has some of the connotations of uh, conniving involvement. But um, yeah, I, I can't take I can't take away from the fact that like God knew that that baby would die, and somehow in his in his uh, bigger understanding, he allowed it to happen. Hmm, interesting. Um, what is the most common question that you get from non-religious people? <sighs> yeah. Perhaps, perhaps the question about homosexuality. People will say, uh, "Do do you think uh, gay people go to hell, or, or some you know something to that extent? Do you think um, God hates gay people?" And I go, "No." Um, so that's that's a really common question. Yeah, I didn't mean to gloss over that, and I, I hopefully my audience understands that that's kind of what I was getting at when I said behind the times with social issues. I that is like that that was in, encapsulated in that, but I mean that oh, is a, a very that is a very major thing. Um, so yeah, why why don't you talk about that for a second and what your answer typically is to people? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the the debate about um, homosexuality it usually gets cast in terms of like either you're for it. Um, and you're on the right side of history and a good part of culture, or you're somehow against it and therefore a bigot. And you must not be, you, you must not actually have a heart because you couldn't possibly say that this is a good thing. And that's, I think, a bit uncharitable way of framing the discussion. And what adds to the complication of that is when you see the the wackos that say, that hold up the signs, right, that say God hates fags. I, I hate even saying that word because it's so offensive but yeah. you, you know that group of people i'm talking Absolutely, about right man. totally the, the westboro baptist cult um that they have in some ways become um the face in many people's minds of what christians actually believe about uh homosexuality and that's just not true so um usually when i approach the topic of what the bible says about homosexuality i i try to approach it at a personal level with a lot of grace and with clarity and by saying first what we don't believe and then moving to what we do believe. So Christians in my circles and in most, you know, biblically faithful churches, 
they would say, God loves homosexuals. He loves them deeply. Um, and it's not true to say that this, the, the, the concept of homosexuality is going to send someone to hell. Um, just a quick little aside, Christians don't believe that sinning more is going to send someone to hell or that sinning less is going to get them to heaven. Um, salvation is it, it, salvation belongs to the Lord and salvation isn't something that Christians think that they can earn or disearn, but rather it's something that God gives people as they trust in Christ as their savior. So anyway, the, that's sort of a brief little aside homosexuality yeah, yeah. as, as far as what the Bible says, um, it's, uh, it, the Bible does talk about it being a sin, but it's not a, it's not a, a gross sin in the sense that like it's worse than all other sins. Unfortunately, that's how it's been cast culturally. Uh, and I mean, by, by culture here, I'm talking about Christian culture. Christian culture has historically made a bigger deal out of homosexual behavior. And that's just not true and fair to what the Bible actually teaches. The Bible says that human sexuality properly expressed is between a man and a woman for, for life in the context of marriage. And that anything outside of that is sin and homosexual behavior is not anything worse than um, me lying to my parents or uh, you uh, um, insulting your girlfriend uh, or, or excuse me, your wife. Um, the, all of these things are equally as sinful in God's eyes. For whatever reason though, the church has made a bigger deal out of it than it actually is. So um, if I was sitting down with a, somebody who said, I, I identify as a homosexual, um, can, I, can I be saved? Can I, can I trust Christ? I'd say, absolutely. You don't, have to, um, you don't have to become un-gay to become a Christian. You know, like, there are people who would say, I'm born this way. And I'd say, okay, like that, you, you feel that way? I can't, I can't really argue with that. You know? um, so the opposite of homosexuality is not heterosexuality, but it's holiness. It's being like Jesus. And so for someone who would identify as a, as a gay person to try and come to know Jesus, they can absolutely do that. It's not that they're, they're somehow worse because they're attracted to the same sex because they're not, they're a human being just like any other human being made in God's image and valuable and full of dignity and, and worth just by virtue of being alive because God made them. So anyway, that's, that's kind of how I approach that as saying you're a human, you're valuable. God made you, God loves you. Um, if you want to express your sexuality outside of God's design, that's your choice, but that isn't God's design. It's better to, in my perception, to follow God's design than to not. Um, but if you don't follow God's design, that's not any worse than other people who are doing whatever they want. Which is basically sin. everyone all the time. Yes, yes. That's, that's why I um, believe the Bible when it talks about the need for people at large to come to know the Savior. Because our bent is just to do whatever we want. I, I, I tell you, I give you an example. One of our, um, one of our pastor's sons, he's a little guy, he's three, um, super cute little guy. He was causing some trouble backstage after church one day and somebody corrected him and he, <laughs> he just throws his arms down to his side and he goes, I just want to live my life. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought to myself, is, is that not just a, 
a perfect summary of how humans at large operate. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That's a great thing for a little kid to say. That's really cute. Yeah. Um, all right. So I, I that so man, what you say though is still so difficult to uh, to take is the answer for that. As I as I'm sure you get like all the time from the people that ask you that question to begin with, <clears throat> which is to even state that it's a sin. Like that. That's so crazy to me and so sad um and is it not that the bible was freaking written at a different time i mean like you said like when the bible was written and there's like you could this is evident in the bible like in passages in the bible like women were not at all on a, on the same playing field as men like to put it nicely they were second class citizens you know and people had slaves and like all these things that that doesn't mean that that's how we should live because people live like that in the bible and that's how people thought in the days of the bible and i i it's hard like as a non-believer like as someone who doesn't necessarily believe that um that god spoke to Paul when he fell off his horse as again, like I believe that Paul believes that, but like, I don't necessarily believe that God spoke to him. Like if I believed every single person in the world that said that they talked to God yesterday, I'd be believing a lot of stuff, you know? And yeah. if somebody that wrote in the Bible says that like, okay, God says it's a sin that, you know, homosexual acts are a sin. It's like, well, isn't that kind of a sign of the times? And I, I, I kind of luckily for Christianity and the Bible, a lot of these other things uh, aren't in, aren't in the Bible. Like if the Bible actually made statements like, "Hey, slavery is totally cool," or you know, it's it's not okay to be a black person, like that, that would be really rough on the faith, you know. And uh, yeah. but in in I don't know, like two thousand years ago, we were at a very different place as. A society and a civilization than we are right now and your thoughts and your belief systems are going to be completely colored by the time during which you are living um so if somebody writes that it's it's hard for me to believe that that is the that that's the thought of god that that two people expressing their love for each other it could be against the will of god is is an interesting thought to me yeah, no, I, I, f I feel the weight of what you're saying, and that comes up a lot. Um, I think the assumption there, though, is that we, as 21st century Westerners, somehow have the world more figured out, and we are um, intellectually and morally superior than people of the past. And that may not necessarily be the case. I think there's a certain bit of chronological s snobbery in that, that those people back then didn't really know how it works, but today we're with it. We're more hip. We're more in tune with the way things should go. And that may be true, but it, it might not be. And that's where I have to kind of reframe it to say, what if there, what if there have been cultures that have got things right and gotten things wrong at different points throughout the day? And so that at least opens up the possibility that the Bible could have spoken to this issue both then and today. And I think more to the point, if if we if we imagine the concept of a of a of a supernatural being like God, and he has a timeless set of moral standards, um, could it not be that those moral standards would rub different cultures in different ways uh, throughout time? Certainly. Like would 
Oh, the, yeah, yeah. That, that point is certainly well met. I, I just, I still can't, I still can't fathom that. In, on one hand, you're telling people to love everyone as themselves, and Jesus is walking around hanging out with prostitutes, and yet then that's just totally not cool. That being said, I, I, you know, I obviously I already know what your response is going to be, which is, yeah, it's okay to love the prostitute as a person and think that they could be a good person, and it's okay to love the homosexual as a person and think that they are a good person. That being said, when the prostitute is getting paid to have sex with somebody, that is a sin. Or that being said, when the homosexual person is sleeping with another homosexual person, that is the sin. It's not just living as a homosexual is not a sin. You're supposed to love those people, but yeah. That's very, very, <laughs> that's very strange and backwards. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, God, that's just such a tough pill to swallow. It's, uh, it, it, it really is. And I, I, I don't, uh, I don't discredit people for struggling with it, but it's not, uh, it's not an abstract concept to, at least to me and probably to most Christians. Cause we're at a point now culturally where, um, we, we all know somebody who is an active homosexual. And so um, I have friends and family that, that live and operate that way. And I have good relationships with them and I'm thankful for and friends with them um, or family to them. And uh, so it's, it is a tough topic, but um, I try to be faithful in my love towards them and also faithful to what the Bible teaches. And so um, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's interesting for sure that, that our that our cultural norm has come to accept it so much and Christians who love the Bible have sort of maintained a position of, well, no, the Bible does say that this is sin. And so we don't want to call something good that God has called something bad. Have you ever been ridiculed for your faith at all? Um, yeah, not intensely, but, but certainly uh, I think early, early on it was more common because I became a Christian in high school. Um, I was, sort of culturally Christian my, in my formative years, but really didn't have a relationship with God, didn't, didn't have a faith of my own. It was sort of a borrowed faith from my parents. And I think I assumed that I was good with God when I was younger. But once I kind of made my faith my own and, and really decided to follow Jesus, um, yeah, I definitely got, got ridiculed for it. And I still get teased from time to time. You know, even, even the guys in my band will give me a hard time. And that's, it's, it's all in good fun usually. So um, but nothing intense. I mean, uh, I, I read the accounts of uh, groups of Christians in the Middle East or in uh, North and Central Africa getting persecuted. Nothing, nothing like that. Yeah. All right, dude, David, why don't we uh, wind this thing down and give people some advice? So if, uh, if anyone listening to this has considered going into the ministry themselves, what, uh, what would your recommendations be for them? Um, if they were considering going into ministry, you'd, you'd want to ask yourself the question fundamentally of, uh, has God called me to this? A am I, am I somebody who wants to do this because it seems cool or I'm going to make money, which by the way, you're, you're not. So if you're thinking about going into ministry, <laughs> you're not going to get rich. And if you do get rich in ministry, you're probably a cult leader or some sort of, you know, wicked Bible twister who... <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to be crass, but like some of these televangelists you see that are using the Bible to manipulate people to give money, yeah. wickedness, totally yeah. wrong, totally not the intent of the Bible. Um, so ask yourself, is there a calling there? And that's hard to quantify. I can't give you a list of, of uh, this is how you can confirm with 
empirical, you know, verifiability that God has called you. But instead, you can you can ask yourself the question, okay, do I have a relationship with God? Do, do I relate to him through through prayer and through reading the scriptures and through doing life in community with other believers um, in the context of a, of a church and, a, and kind of a Bible study small group type thing? If you have some of those things going on, um, you may feel a sense of God leading you in that direction. And then he will give you that desire. He'll give you that desire to want to, to do it. And that desire is a good thing. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be uh, shunned. Additionally, if you're feeling like called to ministry, ask the people around you, hey, does this seem like something that's legitimate? Could you see me doing, functioning in, in a role like this? And the people around you, they can speak into that and say, yeah, yeah, I could see that. Or no, no, I don't think you're mature enough or ready for that. Or nor do I feel like you're gifted in that area. So no, I don't see that. And that can tell you a lot by the by the people around you and, the, and sort of the perspectives that they have. Of course, you don't put all your eggs in the basket of others, but you do certainly consider it, I guess. Yeah. Um, the, the, next, the next thing is you've got to get trained. You've got to get theological education because like I said at the outset, if you're going to stand in front of a group of people and open the Bible and say, this is what God says to you, you, you better know what you're talking about. You, you better not just you know, take it on a whim and say, Hey, you know, <laughs> this is what God says to you. And then that's not in fact what the Bible says. Ooh, that's dangerous. To what extent are you allowed to interpret things for yourself? Or is that, is that frowned upon? Uh, are you in reference to the Bible? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah, the, uh, the Bible is a book that has meaning <laughs> in the words itself. And the job of the interpreter is to, is to discover that meaning, not to determine or twist that meaning, but to discover it. And, um, like any form of communication, there's a context. And so, uh, your job as a Bible reader or explainer is to find that context, discover what the meaning was of the original author, and then relay that meaning to the people today. You you do not have the luxury to kind of make it up and go, well, hey, I know it says this, but I took it this way and it's sort of different and it takes this nuance or this shade and uh, therefore this is what we're going to take away today. N- no. <laughs> so I guess that, th- that those ideas though, um, it, like to the point of going to, to school for ministry and to have a really good command of the Bible, are a lot of the major points kind of told to you. Like, okay, it, it, like if there was a, a hidden message or a hidden meaning in this scripture, this is what it is. And that's not really left for you to decide what the, uh, the underlying message was. Um, like what I sort of autonomy, I guess, are you given to, uh, to figure that out? Well, in, in seminary, um, if you go to a good seminary where they have a sort of open-handed approach on, uh, on theology they'll, they'll, the professors will let you sort of differ in how you, uh, relay content over, but on things that are sort of closed handed to the Christian view, things like Jesus coming back from the dead. Um, it's, it's not as though you could spin the Bible to say, I know it says Jesus said, <laughs> yeah, he came yeah. back from the, but, but not really, you know, that, that kind of thing is sort of out of bounds, if you will. Um, so I don't, I don't know if that's helpful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, 
So basically, what's everything that's written there definitely happened. Maybe there, maybe there's also some subtext, but there's not um, like a completely different story going on from what uh, from what is written. No, no, certainly not. And and the that people will do that all the time. People will read things into the Bible that they want to see there, and it's just not there. And that's wrong, both morally wrong and uh, literarily wrong. You, you shouldn't do that with someone else's words. Right. You, you so it's not supposed it. to be taken allegorically, any of it. Like, it's not supposed to be like, oh, this is this story that's supposed to get us to think about these things. It's like, no, at its core, this is just a story that actually happened. And then, you know, all right, now we can think about these other things. But 100%, yeah. this is something that happened. This isn't just like uh, us playing a game here, telling a story and then trying to think of it's not a myth. It's it's a real thing. Right, right. So th- I'll give you the example of uh, Jesus on the boat when he uh, is asleep and then he gets up and calms the storm. The disciples are freaking out and they're like, oh, my God, we're going to die. Like the wind and the waves are crashing over us. Jesus, don't you care? And Jesus is like, YOLO. No, I'm just kidding. He doesn't say that. But he, <laughs> he, gets, he gets up and he commands the winds and the waves to stop. And they stop. And it's this remarkable story. What, what sometimes Bible preachers have done with that is they'll say, now, friends, what are the storms in your life? And how can God calm those storms? N- n- no, <laughs> that's not what that story is about, preacher man. It's not about how God's going to calm storms in your life. That's a story. The, the, the intent of that story is to show the reader how powerful truly Jesus is, that he has command over the wind and the waves. It's about Jesus being Lord, the guy in charge. It's not about how to make you feel better about difficulties in your life. Right. Now, does the, does the Bible speak to the experience of human difficulties? Sure, but that's not the place. And so that's where faithful biblical interpretation has to come in. Okay, cool. I just wanted to nail that down during this advice portion. So if anyone here is listening and they're thinking to themselves like, yeah, I really relate to the Bible. I think there's a lot of good like philosophical ideas in it. It's like, well, that's kind of not really good enough. You need to relate to it in a way that you actually think that all these things happened. Yeah, I mean, people will do with the Bible what they want, uh, ultimately, but if you want to stay true to it as a document, um, you, you do have to interpret what it meant for the original people before you start extrapolating these philosophical principles that may or may not be actually present in the text itself. Okay. Cool, man. And uh, any, uh, any age requirements for people going... Uh going to i i was going to say the seminary but that would be to become a catholic priest i believe um well no i yeah i went to seminary seminary is just it it comes from the greek word that means seedbed so it's just a place of growth um but yeah so seminary is usually a master's level program Um, you have to get a bachelor's degree and that can be in anything it doesn't have to be in bible um i got my bachelor's degree in bible because i liked it i wanted to study it but um yeah typically an age, a general age is sometime, you know, in your mid twenties, that's just scientifically speaking, that's when your frontal cortex is, your hypothalamus is fully developed and, uh, you're able to make more mature decisions and, and, and formulate thought processes more effectively. So I I would say mid twenties, but that's not a hard and fast rule. There's no like biblical age that says you've got to be, you know, like this age. Yeah. That's dude, that, that advice though is, is, well made because 
Yeah. If there's anyone listening to this right now that's like 18 years old and is like, hey, I'm really religious. It, it, I mean, it, this is only my personal experience. So, you know, obviously take it for what it's worth. But like I was incredibly religious when I was 18 years old and going to church all the time and leading confirmation retreats and teaching confirmation classes. And I mean, we all know the horrible things that happened to me that turned me into the bad person that I am today. So I, yeah, what? Like, no, I would, no, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I would certainly wait until, like you said, until you are at the very least in your mid twenties or so to make a decision on where you want to stand, you know, faithfully for, for the remainder of your life, hmm. hopefully for the remainder of your life, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I will say I felt called to ministry early on. I just didn't know what that looked like right away. And so I didn't jump into it head first until I was in my kind of mid twenties. So yeah. 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 Dude, David, for like everything we just talked about, I just want to say thank you so much. And you're so awesome. And I, so my wife's family lives in Phoenix and I, I would love it if we could like get oh. together whenever I come out there. Cause I come out oh, there like two great. or three times a year. And like talk some more about this stuff because these things can be hard for people to talk about, you know, like you people can be defensive of their ideas. And the way that you speak about all this is so true and faithful and beautiful and not at all um, defensive. And I, I hope that that I did not come across in a way that was uh, like attacking no, any of your views. You I, great. Like I said, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. So I, I don't want to act like I, I do or that I, uh, you know, know anything. So no, no, Blake, I appreciate you, man, having me on the show. It's really a privilege for me to kind of get the get to have these dialogues. And I appreciate your clarity of thought and your humble tone and just the, the faithful ways that you're wrestling through this. I think God is honored by uh, people who are looking for truth. And, and I think if you keep seeking truth, you you can find him. Um, and the, the, the fact may be that he will find you. Um, so uh, these kinds of conversations, I wish were the sort of, and it's not because you and I are so great, but it is to say that the humility that people can demonstrate, these are the kind of conversations I wish would happen at a bigger level. Instead, what we see is just shouting between two perceived opposing sides on the news or on the media, right? And just Facebook or YouTube comments of people just lashing out at one another instead of sitting down and hearing, okay, what are you saying? Oh, okay, I see. Now let me give my perspective, and then somebody goes, "Okay." There's so much value to that, and so totally. I'm thank I'm thankful for you doing a, a podcast like this because this um, it, it shapes culture. It it points people in the direction of, "Hey, let's be civil and have good dialogues." It, thank what, you, man. What uh, what church are you at right now? So that way, if anyone listening to this is living in the uh, greater Phoenix area, if they're going to be visiting Phoenix, they can uh, come out and see you and talk to you. Yeah, yeah. So I'm part of Redemption Church, and uh, our website is just redemptionaz.com. And uh, it's a it's a multi-congregational church, but we are one church within Arizona. So we have 10 congregations all around, eight of them in the Phoenix area. And uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting way of doing ministry. I, I enjoy it a lot, and I like the camaraderie that, with the, the staff. And I think it's a cool way to... Um, connect with people that that uh, want to learn more about the Bible. So, yeah, absolutely, man, dude. Uh, when 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 are you going to be in Phoenix? I would love to take you, get a cheeseburger, hang out, get to know you more. Yeah, man, use that uh, church corporate card. Let's do this thing. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'll probably be out um, in like May or something like that. So, uh, okay, dude, it would be awesome. Um, 
Yeah. Thank you so much. It was beautiful talking with you. And uh, thank, thank yeah. you for the opportunity, man. Seriously, this is a privilege. And I just, uh, I like to make new friends. So it's, it's been great. Yeah, no doubt, man. Thanks, David. Take care. Okay. Take care. Bye. Hey, everyone. It's Blake. Hope you all enjoyed the episode. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, I wonder how I could help Blake out. First of all, you are probably the nicest person in the entire world. Secondly, all you have to do is just tell a friend about the show. I would really appreciate it. If you're sitting there and thinking, man, my job is really interesting, or man, I do this totally badass hobby. I should totally be on this show. Then you totally should be on the show. Just reach out to me on halfhourintern.com, my website. You can email me through there. And uh, if there is another job or hobby that you don't do, but you just want to hear about it, you can submit any sort of idea through the Submit Your Ideas link on the page. Thanks again for listening. Take care.